Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Globe, Maisha Kai. Hey. Maisha, today we're talking with Dr. Maya Rocky Moore Cummings. That is a powerful name. It's, it is. It, there's three names. How powerful <laughs> it is. Maya is an entrepreneur, a politician and wife of late Congressman Elijah E. Cummings. This year, Maya, a former gubernatorial candidate and leader of Maryland's Democratic Party, ran in a special election in an effort to fill the remainder of her husband's term and again in this most recent primary. But today, Maya is here to talk to us about her late husband's memoir called We're Better Than This, My Fight for the Future of Our Democracy. Yes, and you know... This memoir is really special because Maya was integral to seeing through this book's publication after Congressman Cummings passed away last year. And I have to say that this book feels more important now than ever. So it was so great to get Maya's perspective on the path forward for us as a country and to really, you know, hear the ways in which she and Congressman Cummings came together on certain issues, how they differed on others. I mean, she's really a powerhouse in her own right. So uh, it was exciting to have her join us this week. You know, there's that old saying that, you know, behind every powerful man is, you know, an even more powerful woman. And I just feel like the way that her and her husband came together in their marriage, it really felt like a true partnership. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it was so great to talk to Maya, especially after this historic election. And I cannot wait for our listeners here at It's Lit to hear it. Uh, so should we jump into it? Let's do it. Hi, Dr. Cummings. Welcome to It's Lit. Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, it's my honor. It's our honor as well. It's so exciting to have you here especially following such a deeply significant election. We have so much to discuss. But first, we have a little ritual here at It's Lit. Since this podcast is about Black books and writers, we like to start each episode by asking each of our guests to name at least one book that they've considered life-altering or Mm. mind-blowing. Was there a book or books that you considered defining in your life? Octavia Butler, The Parable of the Sower. She is awesome. All of her books are awesome. And I mean, just mind-blowing in terms of her ability to write, her her foresight, her insight. Um, she was just incredible. And it's so sad that we lost her at, uh, you know, such an early age. But, you know, she has contributed greatly, I think, to American the uh, American literary tradition. No, she's incredible. And I agree with everything that you just said. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. I think so, too. And and oddly, you know, that's a book that's come up a lot in uh, 
current conversations in reference to this election as well. So that's a, uh, that was a very good choice. It's <laughs> eerie. It's eerie how much I, I think. I she's She was amazing. I mean, and so, you know, with that, I mean, this is one of those books that you were riveted by. You read it and you just couldn't peel away from it. And, and, and to know that she was foreshadowing so much of what we would see in our nation was just incredible. Most definitely. So, Maya, you've joined us today to discuss the memoir written by your husband, the incredible Congressman Elijah Cummings, entitled We're Better Than This. You are largely credited with being the force behind this book and ultimately saw this through to its completion. So much has happened in 2020, including the deaths of fellow political titans John Lewis and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's worth remembering that it's only been just over a year since your husband's passing. So just to start, like, how are you doing? You know, I am doing as well as can be expected. Um, You know, immediately after Elijah's death, I was so focused on organizing a funeral and, you know, responding to all kinds of correspondence. And then I went straight into an election and then uh, the double, the preventative double mastectomy so, you know, and then I ran in two races. <laughs> so, you know, I did not win uh, in either. Uh, and so afterwards, it really became my time to really be deeply introspective, to really connect with Elijah's memory, to allow myself to grieve and to feel. And so, you know, with that, you know, this tour, this book tour that I've been doing, a virtual book tour, has allowed me to kind of just revel in those memories and uh, in those thoughts and those feelings. And so I'm good. God is good. I'm faithful. But at the same time, you know, I think I'm still um, tender uh, and, and raw in terms of my emotions. Well, yeah, that's so much. Understandable. Yeah, uh, totally understandable. Because that's so much just to contend with what you've, what you've dealt with, with with your loss and just all the, just the 2020-ness of 2020 yeah. on top of all of it. The pandemic, the election, not my election, not just my election, <laughs> the national election, which, and then everything else has been happening in terms of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, you name it. It's just like drama and trauma on top of drama and trauma. And so I think as a people, African-Americans are already, I think collectively we are experiencing trauma. And I am just so proud I know we'll talk about the elections, but I'm just so proud of first-time voters and people across America who just turned out in massive numbers. So in typical national elections, we've had as low as 50% of eligible voters turning out to vote. Uh, And in this election, we had upwards of 75%. And so, you know, a lot of them were, you know, first-time African-American voters. And I'm so proud of everybody who came out because they knew that this was a vital election. And I just hope that we can sustain that for our lifetime. Yeah, most definitely. Now, We're Better Than This came out in September and gives an intimate lens on not only Congressman Cummings' life and career, but the processes behind investigating and impeaching Trump, who recently became a one-term president. Your husband's refrain that, quote, we're better than this, end quote, was both a testament to his faith in America and one adopted as a moral mantra by several Democrats in Congress. But even after the impeachment, 
the outbreak of the coronavirus and the nationwide movements for racial justice, the recent election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris was devastatingly close and is still being contested, begging the obvious question. Can we continue to hold out hope that we are, in fact, better than this? And if so, Maya, how? So it turns out that we're better than this, but just barely. (laughs) 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 But just barely. We've got a lot of work to do in this country. I mean, you know, the current occupant of the White House has proven that he is not a moral leader. Uh, He's not a competent leader. Uh, he's someone who's willing to trample on our Constitution, to ignore democratic norms, to defy the law, to use the legal system in order to avoid accountability. And Elijah saw this. He saw it in his character. He saw it in all of the investigations he had to oversaw, oversee. And, and he felt deeply that this election would be the most vital of our lifetimes. And, and indeed it was. And so it just it turns out that everybody who turned out, uh, especially those who were in the critical battleground states, turned out in their votes. Every vote made a difference. And yes, you know, we are better than this. And a lot of people said that, but it's just barely. And so now the hard work begins, the hard work of moving this nation towards a more perfect union, towards an appreciation for diversity, equity and inclusion to realize that it's not acceptable to reelect an impeached president uh, who has all kinds of scandals under his belt and who will likely be facing some kind of uh, legal challenge, if not prison, uh, after he's gone. And so, you know, we've got work to do in this country. We've got to reinstall or install a moral fiber in this country, uh, one that recognizes that we can't just selectively determine who gets to actually have citizenship or who gets to be considered, you know, whose humanity gets to be considered legitimate and whose doesn't. You know, we are all human beings and people need to actually understand that we're equal, not just in the sight of God, but in the sight of the law too. Uh, And we're striving for a more perfect union. So this is what this uh, journey is about. You know, uh, piggybacking off of that question, You know, one of the things that was really intriguing to see, especially given everything that we've been going through this year, is the slight uptick that we saw in Black support for Trump this election cycle, like this inexplicable uptick. And particularly the several prominent Black personalities who've met with Trump throughout his presidency and during his bid for re-election. And, you know, for me, the opening lines of chapter one actually really stood out to me um, when uh, Congressman Cummings wrote, I met with Donald Trump in good faith. Then he lied to me. Like that seemed like such a warning signal to, to all these people. And, you know, as, as someone who has also spent decades in politics and led the Maryland Democratic Party, encountered black conservatives like Kristen Classic in your own, uh, district, what, if anything, have you deduced about the psychology of those in our community who support Trump? So I think that they're, are several motivating factors. Uh, One is the uh, class factor, the prominent African-American men who actually stepped forward in these last few weeks of the election and who have proven that they've been willing to collaborate with the uh, Trump administration are all high net worth individuals. And so, you know, class as being a uh, division within our community is absolutely, I think, something that uh, we need to realize and understand. 
But, you know, the fact that they were willing to um, use this moment to not just assert their class privilege, but also uh, to get publicity and to get a, a larger platform, even though it was a, a dystopian move on their part, one that uh, absolutely, uh, if they understood the full scope of what they did, that would have possibly put not just this nation, but this world back at least 100 years and at least for the next century. Uh, you know, it was devastating. And so, yes, they leveraged their platforms, but they leveraged their platforms to potentially bury the progress of a nation. You know, I entirely agree with you, um, particularly about how far set back we could have been here. <laughs> you know, we and we're still very much on the precipice of we have now four years, we hope to, you know, at the minimum to try to uh, regain some of the ground that we lost over the last four years. And your husband considered himself a patriot, which, you know, is admittedly an already complicated stance, I think, for those of us who are descendants of the enslaved here in America. And what we've seen from the Republican Party in the past four years is this perversion and weaponization of patriotism to baldly advance white supremacy. You know, Congressman Cummings wrote, we are a country of second chances. But for most of Black America, I think a lot of us would agree we're well past that point. So how do you think we can make the case for patriotism among Black Americans now? We built this country. Uh, we own this we country. <laughs> and I, I, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you know, there is no argument. Just put a period there. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, you know, we need to feel confident in the fact that, you know, our stake here is clear, it's undisputable, uh, and we need to own it. You know, no more, you know, trying to feel marginalized by these people that think that they're super patriots, that they have some kind of stake that's actually better than our own. Uh, that's absolutely not true. And Elijah and people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and John Lewis, they had the same arc. They've seen this story before. You know, they were uh, all born into segregated and a sexist America. Uh, you know, Elijah grew up in the Jim Crow South. He knew what it was like to live in a marginalized existence uh, because of the color of his skin. But then he challenged the system and he saw how this particular democratic system allows one to do so because you have the First Amendment and the freedom to protest. You have the freedom to leverage your um, your voice to challenge. And so at a tender age of 11, you know, he challenged the system. He integrated a local whites-only pool. And he saw how you can use the tools of our democracy, particularly the law, in order to make a transformative difference in the lives of people everywhere. And so he pursued that. So he was an, uh, initially an outsider who became one of the first uh, cohorts of African-Americans to integrate Baltimore City Schools, uh, went on to graduate Phi Beta Kappa from Howard University, uh, became a you know University of Maryland trained lawyer, passing the bar on the first time, first African-American speaker pro tem in the Maryland House of Delegates, and then rose to become one of the highest and most powerful members of, of Congress. That is an arc for you. That is an arc of a story that is tremendous. It's the same arc with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's the same arc with John Lewis. They rose, they were outsiders who rose to become the highest officials inside the system. And so with that, what we're seeing is just another moment in time where we have to re-educate this country, where we have to reassert ourselves, 
where we have to challenge the system and use every tool in our power and at our disposal in order to actually move us towards a more perfect union where we transform lives, where we transform this nation. Congressman Cummings was someone well-known for reaching across the aisle. Like, in fact, we all know he prided himself on it. But even he admitted that he had, quote, had never, never in 12 terms of the House Representatives seen this kind of unapologetic, unrepentant, stonewalled, refusal to see, hear, speak, or deal with, or even acknowledge reality, end quote, as during the Trump presidency. Joe Biden also has a reputation for bipartisan relationships. But since the Republican Party has unconditionally enabled Trump, you see that there, a lot of them aren't even acknowledging Biden's election, many progressives now consider reaching across the aisle a repugnant concept. Speaking from your own significant political experience and perspective, do you think it's still a realistic goal? And what should it look like moving forward? So you're asking me, so you should know that my opinion is different from my husband in this realm. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, um, uh, you know, so you should know that uh, we're in asymmetrical political warfare. And as a result, you know, the Republicans are pushing everything that they can to uh, assume power and to uh, push an unpopular agenda, a minority opinion agenda on the American people. Uh, and they've been unapologetic about the hardball tactics that they've been taking. I think it's time for some tough love. You know, we can't mm-hmm. replicate the Obama years where he entered office trying to gain their approval and bending over backwards to try to uh, seek some bipartisan consensus that they were determined not to fulfill. So now it's time for tough love. It's time to go in a different direction and ap- unapologetically go in a different direction. Democrats have to win Georgia. They have to take those two Senate seats so that they can get a majority uh, in the U.S. Senate and drive home an agenda that can transform this nation and move us in a new direction. You know, I love that you're you have your own opinion about that because you are your own person. You are your own woman, (laughs) you know, and obviously the election of Kamala Harris to the vice presidency is a watershed moment for women and women of color in American history and politics. And, you know, we're widely hearing people say she's broken the glass ceiling. Um, And I report on women's issues for the root. But, you know, as the presidency of Barack Obama taught us, as you just referred to it, even ideal candidates of color, you know, we say ideal in quotes here can prompt massive backlash and punitive behavior from the right. And as a Black woman in politics who has, you know, broken your own ceilings, what does this moment mean to you? And given the impact that Black female voters had in this and recent elections, what do you think it signifies about our influence in politics? So I'm incredibly proud of Kamala Harris. She is magnificent. I mean, she not she just, yeah. uh, not just, of course, becoming the first Black woman, South Asian woman to actually uh, enter the White House in a significant role as vice president of the, of elect of the United States of America, but to run the kind of campaign she did 
uh, when she was running for president, she actually had a real nationwide operation. She was able to raise significant sums of money. This is a moment in time that is critical and pivotal, not just for Black people, but for women and for Black women especially. This is the time, and I keep saying when and where I enter, which is a famous book by Paula Giddings. But this is the time where we need to enter into our power and claim it and exercise it and move this nation forward. Black women, Black women have been moving politics in incredible ways in this election cycle. Uh, I've been a part of a group called Win with Black Women. Uh, it includes people like Donna Brazil and Leah Daughtry and, you know, Star Jones and others. And it's, and, and, and it's been incredible to watch, whether it's transformative leadership on the ground in terms of getting out the vote. Hello, Stacey Abrams. Uh, whether it's, you know, uh, influencing the back rooms and saying, hey, we want a black woman on the ticket and this is the one we want. Hello, Donna Brazil. I mean, this has been an incredible time. Now we need to own it. We're at the table. Let's shape the table and drive the agenda. I love it. And flip some seats. Yes. yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Maya, one of your husband's biggest crusades in Congress was the fight for equitable health care, an issue that has become even more urgent as COVID-19 has raged across America. And Republicans are right now at this moment trying to kill the Affordable Care Act. In the final chapter of this book, you note how the virus has disproportionately affected Black and Brown Americans in many ways echoing your husband's recollection of how his grandfather's life was largely lost because as a Black man, he was, quote, something less, someone who could be allowed to die. Absolutely. Nearly a century later, with millions of lives hanging in the balance and millions more voting against their own self-interest, that sentiment feels compounded. Yeah. Congressman Cummings also wrote, quote, it's racist and it's racist. No two ways about it, end quote. Do you see any immediate way through this? So, first of all, let me just say that the Trump administration's response uh, to COVID-19, the coronavirus, has been genocidal. Uh, his non-response, his willingness to engage in disinformation and misinformation, his willingness to stop developing a plan because they perceived it only affecting blue states and black and brown people, early on. I mean, criminal, genocidal, this is serious stuff. Just on that alone, he should have lost the election by huge margins. Absolutely. And so, you know, what we now have is more than 230,000 Americans now dead. That is more than we've lost in all of our recent wars combined. Disproportionately black and brown. Now, Elijah died before the coronavirus hit, but he would not have been surprised by this uh, administration's response. He saw the streak of cruelty, the lack of humanity at the border and how they treated those kids mm -hmm. uh, in terms of separating from their family with no plan, no plan to ever put them back with their parents. We now have today 600 Latino children that ca they cannot find the parents for. And that is because of the, the direct uh, result of the Trump administration's policy and actions at the border. And so where do we go from here? I think we've already taken the first step as a nation. We have selected a different person to lead our nation. 
And that person, fortunately, has prioritized COVID-19 as something that he's going to drive and try to get a handle on as one of the first items of business. I saw that uh, the agenda, they have a seven-point agenda. I want it to actually include healthcare. Right now, uh, before the uh, Supreme Court, they're trying to, the Trump administration is trying to invalidate the Affordable Care Act in the midst of a pandemic, which makes absolutely no sense, but also reflects the extreme cruelty of this administration. We have work to do, and that work includes an agenda to actually achieve universal health care, not just the restoring of Obamacare, but actually the actual achievement of universal health care in this country. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, protecting Social Security, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we've seen we've seen this stuff before, as you've said. And, you know, you were referring to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor earlier. And a lot of what we saw this year really harkens back to things that we've seen in recent years as well, including, you know, the aftermath of Freddie Gray's killing in Baltimore, you know, where you are. And, you know, I know that your husband considered the 2018 midterm election potentially a quote unquote turning point in history, the moment that saved our democracy. But in those two years since, you know, the midterms have proven otherwise that, that our, that this administration was far more sinister than I think we even gave it credit for. And while uh, Representative Cummings may have believed in bipartisan cooperation, he also wrote that his grandmother had taught him that for too long, white people have been telling African-Americans to wait. So after running for his seat, how would you like to see Congress address this racial justice agenda? They have to have an equity agenda. They have to understand that diversity, equity, and inclusion has to be a lens through which they actually do policymaking. I was actually disappointed in the first uh, COVID relief bill. And while it, you know, doled out significant and important relief to many families and businesses across the United States, they did not have an equity lens on it. More than 90% of Black businesses did not get a dime of that PPP money. And the way that it was designed, it was designed, it was designed to actually exclude people who actually had uh, worse credit. And then it allowed people to walk through the door who had better credit uh, and then gave them a grant on the back end. So they designed it as a loan up front to actually use it as a filter to get rid of people who disproportionately, unfortunately, black and brown, who, who could not access the money. Uh, and then they turn around and allow those who did access the money to turn it into an interest-free grant. That, by design, is a racist policy. And so uh, our Congress actually needs to get more sophisticated in terms of how they actually design policy. And I'm certainly hopeful that a Biden-Harris administration can help direct that kind of insightful policymaking uh, into uh, this next four years and beyond. Maya, and we're better than this. Representative Cummings wrote that he wanted to leave a story for young people, specifically writing, quote, I want the world to see our young Black men and women, end quote. In the past two presidential elections, we've witnessed a growing frustration with establishment politics, as well as young Black voting bloc, as well as a young Black voting bloc that is increasingly disenchanted with the two-party system and more compelled to dismantle it than engage with it and transform from within. What do you think we're not seeing in young Black Americans And how do you think we can encourage them that there is power in engaging with the establishment? We don't have the luxury, to quote uh, Elaine Jones, of being cynical. We don't have the luxury of 
becoming disenchanted and thinking that we don't have to engage. That is a surefire way to find yourself back in the chains of slavery. (laughs) And so, you know, with that, what we've never done is we haven't risen to a new level of sophistication. I think that we can see this selection as providing the platform and the potential for us rising to a higher level of engagement. We've got to go gangbusters on this system. We've got to own it. Uh, And that means running a Boston at every level of government, Uh, you know, (laughs) making sure that we are, and and I say bum rushing the system, Uh, you know, running for office, you know, donating to those who support your agenda, you know, advocating, advocating, even after a person gets into office to make sure that they stand up for the issues you you believe in and are good for your family and your community. Uh, We've got to run a Boston on this system and we've got to do it now. This is the time or if you and if we don't, you know, unfortunately, continuous engagement is the price that we have to pay for freedom. And since we know that continuous engagement is the price we pay. And by the way, protest is just as legitimate as engaging the system. It's an inside outside game and both serve an important role. Uh, And so with that, you know, I just tell young people, you know, open your eyes. This is the price we have to pay for freedom. And that means that we have to continuously be at the door and at the table. Now, you know, this election, which I wanted to end on Saturday and in my mind and heart, it has ended. I I feel like Trump has to know (laughs) it ended, too, but he feels like he must rage on against the dying light because why wouldn't he? But you know, Vice President Bi- former Vice President Biden and Kamala Harris, you know, they campaigned on this battle for the soul of the nation. And it really, really was a battle. The results of this election proved that this is not going to be an easy task. As a former gubernatorial candidate, what would be your first priority in attempting to establish a more equitable, unified, and empowered electorate? So that's different from policy. Um, in terms of, I think one of the first items of business I would do, (laughs) me, uh, is to, um, because Donald Trump opened the Pandora's box of hate, we have got to get control. Uh, we cannot allow this stuff to run rampant across our country. Uh, we have got to, um, put guardrails, I think, uh, around our public square when it comes to respect, the respect for each other and our human dignity. And so with that, I would actually put forward a, um, an emergency, uh, agenda that focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion that required states and localities, uh, to actually put together commissions and strategies in place to, um, basically protect against hate crimes, to educate people about what's appropriate and inappropriate, not just in our communities, but in our schools, uh, to really, really kind of get a handle on this hate rhetoric and certainly the hate behavior. And so I, I call it an emergency preparedness initiative on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so there would be, you know, community groups that would be at the table with citizens and policymakers uh, to, you know, put these guardrails in place at every level of our society. I would also, of course, continue to invest in a year-round engagement of voters. Uh, we can't just show up on on two weeks or two months yes. before an election and expect, yeah. you know, sometime voters or only once one time voters to continue to come out. We have to engage in a continuous uh, plan and program of empowerment. 
where people are being educated, where they are understanding the tools of our democracy and how what their place in our democracy is and, and how to use those tools. Uh, so I would empower, you know, the, the DNC and other entities to actually keep supporting this notion of civic engagement as core to and vital to our democracy. Uh, and then a third thing I would do, I do think that there are a number of things that have been revealed by the Trump presidency. The fact that, you know, that we need guardrails around our democracy, period, uh, that there are certain mm-hmm. things that aren't in place. The fact that we're allowing a Justice Department in an unofficial policy to serve as the law of the land, the de facto law of the land about not prosecuting a sitting president needs to be clarified through actual law. I mean, we need to actually take a pen to our Constitution and, you know, uh, guarantee free and fair elections. Uh, we need to make sure that a voting rights, a true voting rights act is in place that, you know, prosecutes anybody that tries to actually suppress voters. There are a whole lot of things that need to be clarified through law and through our constitution to make sure that we actually have a stronger democracy coming out of this. You know, um, you've given us so much insight on on American politics and and your own insights. And I, I totally, I, I get it, <laughs> you know, because one of the things that struck me so much about this book, about this memoir, is that ultimately We're Better Than This is also a love story about you and your husband. You know, you had over two decades of friendship with Congressman Cummings and 11 years of marriage, and he called you his soulmate. Um, and he was so clearly proud of your political prowess and partnership. So to close, what did sharing this part of your life with him teach you and what is next for you? Gosh, it taught me, interestingly enough, Elijah was a deeply empathetic soul. I mean, he taught me how to listen better. He taught me how to pay attention to how people are thinking and feeling. Um, he taught me to be a more empathetic person, I think, because he was so empathetic. Uh, we were soulmates. I mean, we just bonded on a level of the universal. And it was almost from the very beginning. You know, when you meet a person, when there's never any awkwardness, it's like you've known them for a million years and you start talking to them like you've never not known them. That's how it was for us from the very beginning. And so, you know, our our marriage uh, and our love relationship was built on a strong spiritual bond and a strong friendship. And I will forever be grateful that God saw fit for our paths to cross. In terms of where I take this from here, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I am literally, I mean, I am in prayer and contemplation trying to figure it out. And I, right now, I have a book coming out myself next year. It's called Rageism, uh, where I'll be actually talking about dismantling structural racism and sexism in American uh, society. And so that comes out next summer. But, um, you know, beyond that, you know, I, I would love to be able to serve in public service. I think the downside for me is that, you know, I've never lived in one place growing up. I lived all over the place because I'm a military brat. And so, you know, being adopted by communities like Baltimore that, you know, they pride people on. Did you grow up in what hospital were you born in? You know, what high school did you go to? And you know, so recognizing that for Baltimoreans, I'm an outsider. It's a, a hard sell for them to say, we're not just going to give you the nod because you're the wife of. So I respect that. But I do have to find my place in history and in this country because I have a lot to give. 
Definitely. And we want you to give it. You're incredible. It was so you are. empowering you. and just amazing to hear you speak. I, I feel motivated. I feel like I can do anything. How about you? Marcia? I do too. I can't wait to, I can't wait to read your book. Exactly. Actually. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this book coming. I'm like, all right, we got to have you back. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think we're all energized and ready to go to work now. All right. Yes. Well, that's good. I, I certainly thank you for highlighting Elijah's book because, you know, I certainly want your readers to to pick it up. Uh, it is not just a book about politics. It is about life, love, health, and the future of our country. And so it's a great book. And if you don't want to read it, you can listen to it. Incredible. Well, thank you, Maya Rockymore Cummings, for joining us on It's Lit. It was amazing and yes, empowering to you. have you. And we're definitely going to have you back for your next book. I certainly enjoy, I I enjoy both of you. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Spread the word! If you have any thoughts or feedback, though, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what books got you like getting lost these days? You know, after a really heavy election, I decided I wanted to go with something a little bit lighter. And I do say just a little bit. Um, You know, I'm trying to get myself in the holiday spirit. So I turned to Mariah Carey's memoir that came out, her best-selling memoir, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, because, you know... To, to uh, immortalize her famous words, I don't know her the way I thought I did. So <laughs> I'm enjoying this a lot. Um, really, really dig in um, to, she's really she's really revealing here and it's it's um, giving another lens on this person that we all know as this pop culture icon. So I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. What are you reading these days? Oh, that is so cool. So I'm actually also reading Mariah Carey's book, but I'm Stop also it. reading... <laughs> <laughs> I'm also reading Lilith Dorsey's Orishas, Goddesses, and Voodoo Queens, The Divine Feminine and the African Religious Traditions. Because, you know, I might need that stuff someday. Absolutely. I feel like you've mentioned this before, and it's now sounding like a sign that I need to get into it. We got a new year coming. I think we could all use a little of that feminine mystique, that that power coming forward. Uh, you know, we've got Kamala coming into the, into the White House. I'm into it. Definitely. So... That's what we're reading. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit. Yeah. (laughs)